Hi there, and welcome to Emmanuel. This is our weekly teaching podcast. We hope that it encourages you to live a little bit more every day like Jesus taught us to. God bless you. So I was a, a newly minted scuba diver. The, uh, the guy who trained me was one of these guys that's like fanatical. Uh, made sure that you weren't going to die on his watch. And so I'm down about uh, 65 feet underwater, me and my buddy, and we're diving. And uh, we had a different set of gear with us, and a piece of gear that I didn't realize I wasn't trained on. I thought it was the same as everything else I had. Uh, piece of gear that I had, the, I looked down at the gauge, and I had plenty of air, but no matter how much I sucked on the mouthpiece, none would come in. To put this a different way, I was 65 feet underwater and out of air. And I'm having this hand gesture argument of I could have yelled at my dive buddy, I would have. I'm going, I'm out of air. And he's like, no, you're not. You've got plenty. He's grabbing my gauge. And I'm like, I'm out of air. And I'm like gesturing wildly with my hands. And I don't know if you like have thought through this sequence before. But as a, if you're not a scuba diver, you wouldn't have. Uh, you are already in need of air when you discover you're out of air, right? You're going to take a breath in when you discover there's nothing there. So I'm already on limited air supply, and I'm arguing with my buddy, and finally I just reach out, grab his respirator, rip it out of his teeth, and take a deep breath. <laughs> Shove mine in his mouth, and he's like, oh, you're out of air. <laughs> like, no kidding. You know, that, that second where I went and got nothing was uh, this feeling came over me, which was, I am in deep trouble. I'm in over my head, almost literally. Because of my buddy's limited reserve, we had to slowly ascend and pause and depressurize, blah, 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 blah. You don't care. But it's that moment where you realize that you are in over your head. You guys ever had that moment? That, that moment where like the, the bottom falls out of your gut? It's like at 2 a.m. when you're heading downstairs because you're awake for some stupid reason. And everything's dark, and you know that you're on the landing, and you take a step and discover you're still two stairs up. <laughs> and you're falling, and you've got that, you know, those eight or ten inches when you realize, uh-oh. When I first sat down to start studying for this passage, I had that, that gut fall experience. The I am in over my head experience. Because Galatians chapter 3 verses 15 to 25 is a selection of scripture where Paul is in full rabbinical flight. He is arguing against this thing that had crept into the new church in Galatia uh, from the legalizers, a, a group of people that we've now started calling the legalizers. People who are trying to haul some of the rules and the, the legislation of the uh, temple system into the new faith of Jesus Christ. I love how in the first service, after we finished reading the passage, somebody said, it sounds like a law document. And, and that makes complete sense because Saul, who eventually, because of the work of Jesus Christ, changed his name to Paul, was originally a rabbinical lawyer. And Paul is in full flight here, arguing 
And I couldn't help but think between the two services of that passage where, where Paul says, I've become all things to all people, that in some way I might win some. Paul puts on the, the academic argument in this passage. We're in the middle of a study on the book of Galatians where we're working through verse by verse the entire book. And in concept, I like that because it means that when you come across difficult passages, it's kind of obvious if you skip them. Yes, uh, this, last week we stopped at verse 12. This week we're picking up at verse 25. No reason. <laughs> it's kind of obvious when you skip it. So you're forced to work through the passage. In concept, I like that because it means that you wrestle with the difficult parts. Until I'm the one wrestling with the difficult parts. <laughs> And I don't know about your life, but my life doesn't always line up where I've got all kinds of energy on the week where we need to go into the deep water. Uh, in fact, between services, I kind of... Anyway, you don't need to know about that. <laughs> What's my point? My point is that today is going to be a day with some heavy theological lifting. Frequently, we can kind of leave church with a bumper sticker saying that you can chew on. But there's three mountains to climb today. Three mountains. And I love how the commentator who I'm stealing that image from put it. You climb the first mountain and you see the second mountain ahead of you. And all right, well, we're going to do it anyway. So you climb the second mountain you see the third mountain ahead of you. And the temptation is to stop there. But when you climb the third mountain, that's when you see the gorgeous view. That's when the view you came to find is revealed. Today, I want to climb the three mountains. But if you're anything like me, we're going to need Jesus to carry us, the Holy Spirit to carry us most of the way. Uh, I don't know if it's appropriate to call the Spirit a Sherpa, but it works with the imagery. Uh, so will you pray with me? And then we're going to read the passage, and I'm going to do my best to explain these three mountains. And Jesus, we know that you are so good. We know that you've got good things planned and good things ahead and that you are still doing amazing things in our life. And Lord, as we, in our weakness, come to this passage, in our humanness, God, we would pray that, Holy Spirit, you would fill in where we are weak, that you would be strong in our weakness. Lord, would you do renovation in our souls, in our mindsets, in our worldview? Would you... Would you cause us to rearrange our thinking to be more in line with you? Lord, do major work in us. We, we ask you again. You have been so faithful over the years. We, we ask you again to keep doing work in our lives. Even as we head into this passage that we know we're over our head. I ask this in your name. Amen. So Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15, and I warned you. Now, this is thick stuff. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. I'm not supposed to interrupt Scripture, but just for a second, I find that line hilarious because nothing that follows sounds like everyday life. <laughs> Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. 
What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is no lo then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in His grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. I'm going to pause here because I forgot to do something. Anybody confused yet? <laughs> Anybody? I forgot to explain something. I need to give some historical context. I, I totally should have done this before uh, I started reading. What verse are we in? Somebody remember what verse we're in so I can come back to it. Thank you. <laughs> Remember it in a few minutes. I need to give you three historical perspectives really quick. Because everything in this passage is built on an understanding of three covenants. These are not the three mountains, on three covenants. The first covenant was the one established, and the purpose of all three covenants is how does humanity relate to God? All right? The first covenant was established between Abraham and God. God came to Abraham and established a covenant with him, saying, Abraham, someday your descendants are going to outnumber the sand on the seashore, and they are going to be a blessing to all generations, to all people, to all nations. Abraham, I am going to make a way. This is now at this end of history, interpreting the covenant made with Abraham, I'm going to make a way through your descendants for people to come back into a relationship with me. That's the first covenant with Abraham. That's the foundation of almost every type of Jewish thinking because Abraham was the father of all of Judaism. Hundreds of years later, the people of God have been enslaved in Egypt. God has led them miraculously out of Egypt via Moses, all kinds of miracles. They walked on the bottom of the ocean, which when I ran out of air, I might have been praying for. <laughs> they walked on the bottom of the ocean. God took them to the mountain, and there with thunder and lightning and shrouding the top of the mountain, with Moses' face glowing, down comes the covenant of the law, with the commandments carved into stone tablets. And the covenant of the law was established as the way that the nation of Israel could relate to God. And over the generations, if you take a look at Deuteronomy, it's complicated enough. But over the generations of people trying to follow the law, they kept adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. Until they wound up with something called the Talmud. An entire bookcase full of minute details on rules and regulations on how to keep holy and be in relationship with God. Second covenant. And then the third covenant, the way of Jesus, who came, died, rose again to pay for everything you've done wrong and everything I've done wrong and make it possible for us to relate to God again. The people that Paul is writing to are writing from the perspective of those three covenants. And they define all of reality. If the most important thing about you is what God says about you, those three covenants define how you relate to God. And they define all of reality. Now, verse 18. 
Thank you. Uh, let's go back to verse 13. Or uh, 17, sorry. 17. 17. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later, that's the second covenant, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and must do away with the promise. For if inheritance depends on the law, then it, is no, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner to sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come. We are no longer under the supervision of the law. Anybody else confused? Still? Is it any wonder that a friend on the first service said, it sounds like a law document? Because Paul is talking like a lawyer here to people who want to talk like lawyers. There's three mountains in this passage that I think we need to scale together. They come together. They only make sense together. In verses 15 to 18, Paul is attempting to set things in the right order. And this is why it was so important to explain to you the covenants. Remember, I warned you there's heavy lifting today. For the legalizers, you could only understand the covenant of Jesus Christ, the gift of Jesus Christ, if you made your way through the covenant of the law. They viewed it as a, like a set of staircases. You'd step first onto the covenant of Abraham, and then second under the covenant of the law, and then third, you could step onto the covenant of Jesus Christ. And so being built on top of the other covenants, the legalizers would try and bring the very best, in their terms, of the law covenant into the covenant of Jesus Christ. Uh, you have to be circumcised if you want to be part of the covenant of Jesus Christ because that's what you had to do under the covenant of the law. You must perform these rituals if you want to be cleansed under the covenant of Jesus Christ because that's what we had to do under the covenant of the law. You have to observe these holy days. You have to do it in this way. You have to make these sacrifices if you are going to be saved under the covenant of Jesus Christ because it is built upon the foundation of the covenant of the law. That's the legalizer's mindset. And what Paul is doing is trying to write to completely reorientate things and put things back in the right order. Paul is explaining that it's not a set of stairs. It's like a fork in the road with a dead end. If you go down the path of the covenant of the law, what you discover is death. I tried to make a graphic that would explain this last night. 
had air, we have technology that lets us draw on the screen like they do in the Super Bowl. I had arrows flying everywhere during practice. It's a terrible idea. If you go down the path of the covenant and try and live by rules and regulations, what you discover is a path of death because freedom can't be found there. But the path of Jesus Christ, you start at Abraham and you go straight to Jesus. You don't go through the law. Jesus is built on the promise given to Abraham, which is built on the promise given to all of mankind when we rejected God and we are expelled from paradise. And God promised that someday I will send one that crushes the head of the enemy. It's like uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the first one. Line, the witch in the wardrobe. Who's seen that? Okay, seriously. It's a kid's movie, which I understand means every adult has seen it. No kidding. It's great. If you've seen it, you might remember this scene. One of the children has been a traitor, and his life is forfeit. And so Aslan, the Jesus figure, in terms of a lion, trades his life for the traitors and willingly lays down on the sacrificial stone altar with all kinds of rules inscribed around it. And the witch kills Aslan. And all the evil ones cheer and drift off. And the witnesses mourn, and even they begin to leave when everything changes and the table breaks, the stone altar cracks and Aslan is standing there and the children ask the perfectly obvious question, how can this be? We saw you die. C.S. Lewis, I love how brave he was to refer to it as magic. He's talking about these spiritual laws as magic and our, like, if that happened today, people would condemn him as evil. But he had Aslan say something like, and I could get this wrong, yes, the witch knew the, the laws of the magic. But if she had tr truly understood, she would know that there is a deeper magic that conquers the stone. Jesus, in laying down his life, completes the old covenant and breaks its power the covenant of the law, and makes way via the covenant of Abraham all the way back to the promise of God for you and I to be made right with Jesus. And he completes and sets aside and breaks the covenant of the law. That's the first mountaintop. We don't have to run through the law at all. Jesus finishes it. It's not about rules. It's not about regulations. It's about relationship. It's about relationship. The second mountaintop comes in verses 19 to 22, where Paul attempts to answer the perfectly obvious question. And in fact, I got this question by Facebook Messenger earlier this week. I got it the day before I started studying this passage. If I got it the next day, I'd be able to answer it better. Well, what was the point of the Old Covenant then? Why do that? 
Why do the thing that's going to lead to death? Why do that? And there's all kinds of reasons for the people who lived under it. But the real question is, what is the point of the Old Covenant for you and I? Because it's all well and good to yell at the past. But you have to live your life right now. And what is it that the covenant teaches you, the law covenant? And Paul answers that. It could be different for those who had to live under it, but for us, the covenant stands as testimony that the way of rules doesn't work. You know this from your own life. I know this from my own life. Maybe you're a better person than I am, but when I've got rules in front of me, I can say, yes, I'd like to keep them, but I want to break them, especially when they become inconvenient, when they start chafing and they, they get in the way of doing what I think should be done. And so I, if you're anything like me, we start trying to find ways to creatively interpret the rules, reinterpret words to mean things that a plain reading doesn't mean. And the covenant stands as testimony that rules and regulations will not bring about healthy relationship between man and God and man and each other, mankind and each other. Person kind if you're in the parliament. Rules will not bring about community. It's one of the reasons over the last like 14 years I've gone on this little campaign to pull down signs around our church. Because whenever I see a sign, it is testimony. I don't mean like sign this way to the bathroom. Whenever I see a rule hung on a sign, it testifies that we've got, we've admitted defeat in seeking relationship, in seeking community. There's a church I attend when I'm on vacation. This is going to get a little bit TMI, too much information, but just forgive me and go with me. It's a little bit longer of a service. And there's a saying that I was taught when I was a kid, you never buy a cup of coffee, you can only lease it. And because of the length of the service, I almost always have to make a lease payment partway through. And so I go, and Every single time, I have to laugh on the inside, and nobody there gets the joke. I'm hoping you guys get the joke. Above each and every urinal in every male bathroom of this church, in as big a font as they can fit on a regular-sized piece of paper, are the words, please flush after every single use. They have to spell out every time. And I laugh at this. Because they are trying to establish, they're trying to fix bad behavior with a sign. They're trying to make healthy community by hanging a piece of paper. And it won't work. Rules never bring about healthy community. Because if you're dealing with somebody who cares so little about the community that they can't even be bothered to flush, hanging a sign, making a rule, won't fix the broken heart. Rules can't save. And that's, for your life and for my life, the point of the covenant, the old law covenant. Thousands of years of testimony that rules cannot save. So what can? And this is where we start scaling the third hill.
verses 25, or 23, sorry. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That's what I was just talking about. If nothing else, then the fact that I can't keep such basic rules as treat each other right testifies to me that I need a Savior outside of myself. If nothing else, the law points me to Jesus because I can't do it on my own. Maybe it's the same for you. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The same words that are said about Abraham. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Jesus saves. Jesus reestablishes the relationship with God and us. Jesus is strong where I am weak. Jesus is sufficient where I am in debt. Jesus frees and saves. Not rules. Not regulations. And there's a line in there that Christians trip over all the time. And it creates this massive debate in Christian circles. That we would be justified by faith. And if you follow any like theological arguments, you will immediately start having little twitches because this is the line that is used to head into the predestination or free will argument. And some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And some of you are like, please don't talk about that. <laughs> because it's a complete terrible. And I hate that debate. Because it stops Christians from asking what should be the next question. Okay? We've been justified by faith. We've been set free. We're no longer under the law, supervision of the law. Jesus has freed us. Why? To what? Am I just suddenly plopped outside of the prison? Like one of, You've all seen that movie, right? Where the, the guy's been in prison for years and he's suddenly released and he's standing outside the prison gates. And he's totally lost. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He's got no idea what the point of life is anymore. Has Jesus just freed me into nothing? No. And that's where we're going to pick up next week, but I wanted to give a glimpse of it this week because there's a good answer. Jesus has not freed you just so you can run around doing whatever you want. Jesus has not freed you into nothing so that you can have all kinds of free choice. And I'm going to go do whatever it feels right to me. Jesus has freed you into family. And I get that some of us have really twisted backgrounds and understandings of what that word means. And I'm sorry for that. But Jesus has freed you into the best version of family. The one where the head of the table willingly takes the lowest seat. The one where we sacrifice ourselves so that others may live. We do the dirty job. A couple of weeks ago after I finished preaching, this would be about three weeks back, I went home to take a nap and uh, started getting some text messages. Um, 
I hadn't even realized he was sick. But a, a family member was letting me know that Ed Arsenault had passed away uh, several days before. They'd already had their family time, the, the memorial. If you, uh, if you didn't know Ed, he hasn't been with us for a little while. Short guy with a giant laugh. Good guy. I couldn't help but remembering this moment. And it came back to me as I was thinking about what kind of family has God saved us into. And I'm sure Ed is human, or was human, just like all of us. And I'm sure he had his, his spots. But I've got this memory of like 2006, 2007. Uh, it was back when Peter Reed was our lead pastor, uh, but he was working with the convention a lot, so he was, he was away quite a bit, and I was preaching. And just before the first service, somebody came up, and I can't even remember who it was, but I can remember the words. Pastor, which is always a bad sign. <laughs> there is one guy around here who calls me pastor on a regular basis without meaning anything. Normally I get Micah. It's only when there's trouble coming that I get the pastor. <laughs> pastor. Somebody filled the handles of the front door. And they use different language. I'll use more polite. With dog feces. And filled the locks with the same. I can remember standing there. I've got like five, ten minutes before the service begins. And I'm trying to find rubber gloves and like paper towel that will actually deal with this kind of stuff. And we were, I, I, I knew full well, I knew full well that we were optimistically hoping that it was dog feces. And I went out and I was trying to clean it up and I, I can remember Ed coming up with a, a mop bucket and a, a big long mop. And he said, you go do what you need to do. I can take care of this. It's like, no, 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 Ed, I'll, I'll take... No, you go do what you need to do right now. I'll take care of this. You know, over the years... I've had lots of people who want to tell others how things should be done. Sometimes they want to sit in leadership chairs. Sometimes they just want to be able to tell people what to do and then leave. I've had one insist on cleaning up dog crap. The family that Jesus has called you to is the one where we take the lowest seat where we follow the one who stripped down to his underwear to wash the feet of his disciples, who was beaten and flogged and called us to take up our cross and follow him. The family that Jesus freed you into is one where we look out for each other by taking the lowest seat where we're called children of God because we don't insist on our rights. But we watch for others and do our very best. And look, we fail. I know we fail. I know we fail. I know I fail. But Jesus has freed you into a family. And as I say to the teens almost monthly, it's up to us together. It's up to you 
whether this place becomes that kind of family or keeps being that kind of family. Well, the greatest among us are the guys who set up chairs on Saturday without anybody knowing. Or the parents who organize events in the background without any praise. Or the people who serve on teams after working full weeks. We're called into family together. We're freed from the law. We're freed from the rules and the regulations. We are freed from that pointless prison of trying to check off all the right boxes to be called into a family where the head lays down his life for the lost. And I can't think of a better view to end our hikes on than gazing at that kind of servant leadership that is modeled by Jesus than by staring along into the heart and the lifestyle of Christ. As we close out our service in worship, I can't think of a better thing to fix our eyes on than the sacrifice that Christ modeled for us. The gift of freedom not to a pointless life, but as Jesus teaches us, I have come, he said, that you may have life and have it to the full. I can't think of a better thing to stare at as we close in song. So will you pray with me? The band will come. Some of us will sing well. The others will make a joyful noise. <laughs> and we're going to pray. Jesus, we can't do this. We can't live like this. We can't live free from the rules and live up to the standard of the family without the Holy Spirit. So would you please flood our veins again? Would you please flood our minds again? Would you please flood our souls again? And help us see what it means to be family. Help us see what it means to be called together to move forward. Help us see a new the type of life that all of us are called to. Lord, some of us have been striving after this for years. Lord, would you encourage those of us who, who keep aspiring to that? Don't let us give up. Thank you for your faithfulness. That even in our weakness, you've been strong, and we can say that for years. And some of us, Lord, we're running hard after this as if for the first time. Lord, please, don't let us become winded early in the race. Lord, give us your strength to keep pressing on towards the prize. We pray this in your name. Amen.